Hello and welcome to DEI Today, um, our podcast where we discuss topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the goal of creating pathways of equality and belonging for uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, communities like you and uh, mine and yours. Listen, I'm your host, Kay Edwin Bryant. On today's episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Larry Wellborn. Dr. Wellborn supervised my PhD in Sydney, Australia. Uh, he is a phenomenal gift to the academic world, a great person. I tell you, Dr. Wellborn uh, studied as a student at the campus of Yale University, uh, went on to uh, Tübingen to share there in Germany. If I'm not mistaken, he uh, went by Vanderbilt and then University of Chicago and then McCormick Seminary. Uh, and then where we met and studied together, where he led me in a wonderful experience of academia, Macquarie University, Sydney, Australia, and now tenure professor at Fordham University. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today and being on our show. Thank you. I am very pleased and honored to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I tell you, we are excited uh, today just to talk and have a great conversation about the intersections of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, many people think that's a concept that started in a modern social construct. But I really believe as a New Testament scholar, perhaps an early, Christ early Christian historian, you could help us understand that those conversations may not uh, be in the same frame, but those types of conversations have been happening for a very long time. Uh, so I'm excited today uh, to hear about your work, uh, your touch points in the ways that you've connected with diversity, equity, and inclusion, then your own story. You know, being a, a child raised in your earlier years in Mississippi, mm -hmm. I'm certain that you've been able to see uh, just a shift of time and uh, culture, uh, the way people gather and belong, and I'm just excited. So I want to just jump right in. And I really believe that uh, there are things to be gained uh, through talking about early Christianity and these things that are happening in our world. Uh, there are so many uh, challenging things happening in the world right now with race. Uh, there are combative relationships between, uh, if you will, them and us and the neighbor and the enemy. Uh, finding a very difficult space for people to gather and belong and really understand what it means. Uh, in your work, you talk about being extracted and then being able to participate in a way where community uh, is something that's appreciated by all persons involved. So I think all those things combined uh, have a bearing on the discussions of diversity, equity, inclusion today. So let me ask a pointy question. How do you think texts like Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Romans 14, I hope I'm doing good, Professor. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> how, how do you think texts like that have been bearing on discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion now? Well, Kerry, that's the perfect question, and it shows your deep knowledge of the text uh, that you would point to those three passages uh, when I began my own doctoral work in Chicago, um, I became convinced that the Apostle Paul established communities that were intentionally diverse across ethnic 
and social economic lines, including people of different genders. And the first text that you mentioned, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, scholars realize that this passage preserves a primitive baptismal formula used in the Pauline churches. So when Paul initiated people into the group of Christ followers in big cities around the Mediterranean basin, yes, as they were baptized, they heard spoken over them the words in Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, <laughs> no longer slave or free, no longer maleness or femaleness, but we are all one in Christ. Now, this is a radical formula. It erases the distinctions of race, class, and gender wow. that that have structured society, that have divided people from time immemorial. Um, sociologists of early Christianity described that baptismal formula as a liminal or boundary setting device. So within the community defined by this formula, a person's identity is no longer limited by race or class or gender. Now, it's important to realize that Paul was not promoting the erasure, <laughs> the erasure of race. On the contrary, there is another version of that baptismal formula in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is a formula of inclusion. Uh, Paul says, in Christ we are all one, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. So, in the Messiah, we retain the particularity that we cherish, uh, that was passed on to us by our parents and our foreparents, but these categories no longer limit us. And what this indicates is that uh, these earliest communities of Christ followers were experiments, Carrie, in a new social, a new social identity. They were experimenting with a new way of relating to one another. Uh, one of my first students, Carrie, one of your predecessors uh, at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, was a young man who came to my class fresh from the floor of the Commodities Exchange in Chicago, where he experienced the calling to ministry. This was a young man named Frank Anthony Thomas. Yes. He was a member of Jeremiah Wright's church. That's right. And yes, he, he, his soul was inspired. His heart and mind were captured by this Pauline vision of 
early Christianity as a movement that promoted egalitarian inclusiveness. And so when Frank Thomas graduated and uh, received his first calling to a church in the western suburbs of Chicago, um, a large middle-class African-American church, New Faith Baptist Church, Frank invited me to come to his church and to teach an adult education course entitled The Pauline Vision of Martin Luther King. <laughs> and that was one of my first opportunities to put the radical vision of the Apostle Paul and the first Christians into action. And as a result of that class, Frank Thomas sent the members of his church into the housing projects on the south side, on the south side of Chicago to paint the walls and to clean the floors and to remove the barbed wire that separated people, one neighborhood from another. In fact, we were so active in those years that we encountered, as you might expect, some resistance. And uh, I didn't know what to do. In fact, both of us were in our late 20s. And Frank Thomas said, I know what to do. So he called up a famous scholar who taught at Iliff Theological Seminary, uh, the University of Denver, uh, he was the first director of the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta. And he invited Frank and I to come out to Denver and spend the week with him, mm. commuting together, uh, reading again the great writings of Martin Luther King, uh, King's great uh, work, Trumpet of Conscience, and Why We Can't Wait. So uh, these matters have been close to my heart for a long time, and they have also driven my research agenda and my publications. A few years ago, I published a little book uh, with which, Carrie, I know you're very familiar, uh, in, in, entitled Paul's Summons to Messianic Life. And that book has three moments the neighbor, the kairos, and the awakening. And the argument of that book, uh, it's based on Romans 13, verses 8 to 14, where Paul argues that there is now only one law, only one requirement, only one obligation remaining in our lives, and that is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul says a person, a person who does this has fulfilled all the law. How's it possible in our divided world to love the neighbor uh, when the neighbor is a stranger or when the neighbor is an enemy? How's that possible? Paul came to the conclusion that it is possible through an orientation to the present moment, the kairos, 
as the moment in which God's purposes are being fulfilled. Uh, this resonates, you know, with the philosophy of Martin Luther King in his book, Why We Can't Wait. Yes. And in one of the last speeches that he gave at the conclusion of uh, the Voting Rights March when they passed over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and marched on the capital of Alabama, King stood there in front of the Capitol, uh, and the speech that day concluded with the refrain, how long, how long will it be before the barriers are knocked down, before equality and justice rain down like mighty waters? How long, and then King answered with the words of the book of Revelation, how long, not long. How long, not long. And if you live in that moment, if you live in the conviction that God is about to make the continuum of power, the continuum of oppression and injustice, that God is about to make that continuum explode, right? If you live in the moment of not long, not long then you are capable of the awakening. And, uh, Carrie, I think that the awakening is underway. Yes. You know, we saw it in the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay. And we're seeing it at the grassroots level in Dayton through the political activism of pastors like yourself. Um, there is an awakening that is beginning and I know that it seems dark right now. I know that um, people are divided and hateful. Uh, racial prejudice is out in the open. People are suffering. But in Romans 13, verses 8 to 14, Paul reminds us <laughs> that the awakening comes at the darkest moment, just before the dawn. Oh, my. That, that's what he says. He says uh, that salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. And to conclude my little sermon here, today, Carrie, <laughs> I'll just uh, say in response to the third text that you mentioned, yes. 1 Corinthians 11, my current project, the book on which I've been working now since what? <laughs> 2015, a long time, seven years, is a book entitled That There May Be Equality. Oh, my. That There May Be Equality. And the subtitle is A Radical Idea uh, in Pauline Theology. And in particular, I'm focusing on the passage that you mentioned where Paul argues that when people come together, when they assemble, especially when they sit down at the table to break bread, yes. there ought to be waiting for one another and sharing of resources. And then a little bit later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is appealing for the Corinthians to contribute to the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, and there Paul makes an even more outrageous 
and radical argument. He says, the purpose of the collection is not that there should be relief for some and affliction for others. So the division of the world into the haves and the have-nots, that's not the purpose of our economic life together. And Paul continues, but rather... The collection is based upon the principle of equality. And then Paul says, so in the Kairos, in this moment when time is full, your abundance, he's speaking to the Corinthians, your abundance should be for their lack so that their abundance might someday be for your lack. And then he comes back to it. He comes back to it again, and he says, so that there may be equality. And then, Terry, and then he quotes a scripture. He quotes a scripture from the book of Le- the book of Leviticus in connection with the manna miracle when God uh, made bread in the form of manna for the hungry Hebrew people in the wilderness. And Paul quotes the scripture, but he changes the Greek text a little bit. Uh, and if you translate it literally, Carrie, here's what Paul says. He says, as it is written, now listen to this. The one who has much should not have more. Wow. And the one who has little should not have less. Now, only once in my life, and I'm not young anymore, only once in my life have I heard a sermon from a Christian pulpit based upon that text, and Carrie, that was a sermon that you delivered. Oh, my some years ago. Uh, so you're absolutely right to point to those three texts in the Pauline epistles. They have been at the center of my research now for a long time, and they've also uh, motivated uh, my uh, adventures uh, into uh, public action. Oh, this is just overwhelming and i tell you larry i am um so excited there is so much uh uh, preachers at times use a text they a phrasing they say there's an ocean full of text but only a bucket full of time Uh, (laughs) (laughs) as, as i listen to you the word experimental jumps out in that there must be a risk taken uh, and that risk is to uh, participate in a conversation and community in a way where we're not we're vulnerable enough to allow ourselves to understand the other uh, to in some way possibly enter the lived experience of those who are unlike ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you rightly point out that in the words of King and in the text of Paul, being able to have a shorter window and understanding that we must not wait lo- any longer than now, that the right. moment is upon us and the awakening, the both shop, the, uh, the awakening that happens that when people look around and see and they ask themselves, how could I have participated in this type of behavior or this type of rhetoric? I believe you're right that that type of awakening has to happen. And I, I want to do what you've done to me in many classes. I want to meddle a bit 
Uh, <laughs> good, good. And so I have a question. I know you are uh, connected uh, deeply for years uh, with the book of First Clement. Yes. And I know that you were working on a, uh, you have a monograph, the young versus the old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you have a commentary, I believe, that's probably close to being published, if not already done. No, not quite yet. Not you quite not. yet? No. Yeah. Well, this is my question and uh, some tension I want to rip, lift up and raise out of the text. I want to look at it closely. Yeah. Do you think these concepts that you unpacked for us, and they are compelling, do you think in any way that the young, the generational gaps, the the pitting of perhaps the younger generation who is now more uh, social media, media oriented than they are maybe historically oriented to life? Uh, and then the older generation, uh, I have to include myself in that. Uh, and our experience and coming on the back end of civil rights, being a second, third grader at the time, uh, shortly after King was killed. And I asked myself the question, is there tension between the generations on these matters of equality and equity? And you mentioned earlier about, about Black Lives Matter. Uh, that's predominantly a young movement. Yes. Uh, you know, while we see older adults and some mature adults in the movement, in the marches, they predominantly, it's a young movement. But when you talk about civil rights, it, it is a predominantly an older movement. Mm -hmm. What do you think can bridge that gap? Uh, do you think maybe reclaiming these texts at the earliest experiences of these first Christians in some way has an import for us that we can maybe negotiate the tension between the generations a bit better than we have to move this conversation forward. Uh, I hope that makes sense, and I hope in some way you can give me some insight. Oh, it, it, it is very relevant, Kerry, the question that you're asking, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing I noticed in my research for that monograph, uh, The Young Against the Old, uh, Generational Conflict in First Clement, I noticed that in the Pauline epistles, there is no age requirement for participation in community life, nor is there an age requirement for leadership. Wow. On the contrary, uh, the, the persons whom Paul empowers, Timothy, <laughs> Titus, Onesimus, these are all young people. Uh, we don't know the ages of all of the, the persons who are mentioned by name in Paul's epistles, but with regard to Timothy, we know that he's a young person. Paul tells the Corinthians not to despise his youth. youth. So uh, this Pauline vision of a community in which young people were empowered for late leadership the sad fact is that with the passage of time, mm. that vision faded. Oh, my. And by the end of the first, beginning of the second century, uh, the churches that Paul established were in the control of a group of wealthy older men, householders, who were in control of the affairs of the church. 
And then, Carrie, something happened, something dramatic at Corinth. A group of young men rose up and threw out the old presbyters. <laughs> and, uh, I'm convinced, and I made this argument in my book, they were inspired by the memory, mm. the memory of Paul, the memory of a time when age was not a requirement for leadership. Um, the old presbyters who were deposed, they appealed to the church in Rome to intervene on their side. And so a long letter, 65 chapters, that's why I'm not finished yet with my commentary. <laughs> a long letter was written by uh, the corresponding secretary of the Christ groups in Rome. Um, his name is traditionally given as Clement. A long letter was written to the church in Corinth urging them uh, to reinstate mm. the old presbyters and, Carrie, this is the heartbreaking thing, My. the young people were advised to take themselves into voluntary exile. Wow. To leave the church. Now, the great um, progressive, progressive church historian of the early 20th century, Adolf von Harnack, the professor of early Christianity at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Harnack understood how crucial this moment was in Christian history. Here's how he described it. He said that as a result of the intervention of the Roman church, restoring the old presbyters, and sending the young people into exile. Harnack said as a result of that, the pneumatic or spiritual democracy of, G of Jesus and Paul was broken. Wow. It was broken and crushed. And since that time, sadly, many churches have been structured as a hierarchy. Now, I teach here in New York City, in a Catholic university, and there are many good things about the university where I teach. The Jesuit tradition is a tradition of noble service and high intellectual achievement. Uh, but the Catholic Church right now has been discredited in many places because bishops and even Perhaps it is alleged uh, the previous Pope, Benedict, um, did not incarnate the spirit of democracy that existed in the time of Jesus and Paul. Uh, so for our moment, yes. for our moment, in my opinion, uh, people my age... Uh, who were young when the civil rights movement began. Um, Carrie, you've probably seen the wonderful television miniseries um, um, 
Oh, the final episode of it uh, is called Back to the Movement. Oh, yes. Uh, PBS, I think, produced it. Yes, it's a PBS yes. production. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a history of the civil rights movement. And the final... It's on the prize. Eyes on the prize. Thank you. Eyes <laughs> on the prize. And the final episode of Eyes on the Prize is entitled Back to the Movement. Mm. And, Carrie, it is devoted to the Harold Washington campaign uh, in Chicago that brought the first African-American to uh, be the mayor of that big, uh, turbulent city. Carrie, as a young student... Mm. I was a volunteer in the Harold Washington campaign. I was a runner. I was a runner for him on the streets of Chicago. Um, so those of us mm. who were young uh, during the civil rights movement, who were inspired by Martin King and Otis Moss and Samuel DeWitt Proctor and others, it is our task to empower the young people, uh, to reach out to the young people uh, across the, the, the years and uh, to build a bridge in which uh, the young and the old collaborate toward that spiritual democracy, that, egalit that egalitarian movement. Uh, that inspired uh, Jesus and, and, and Paul. So, yeah, I take that to be my calling. And I'll, I'll tell you, Carrie, it's no secret. I was invited. I was invited to give a speech a couple of years ago uh, for the Dayton Rotary Club. Hmm. Now, these are the movers and, and shakers of the Dayton area. And I chose as my topic generational conflict and what can we do about it. Hmm. And toward the end of my presentation, uh, I did a little bit of meddling. <laughs> John Lewis said I tried to get myself into some good trouble. Some good trouble. I suggested to these Rotarians, most of them older people, that uh, the path forward for our country would be to embrace student loan forgiveness, to lift mm. the intolerable burden, mm. the weight of student loan debt that uh, keeps so many of our young people uh, encumbered and unable to go forward in life. Well, Carrie, you can expect after my speech was over, several <laughs> people came up to me uh, with uh, anger in their eyes. Uh, they weren't happy to hear this message, but yeah, that's what that's what I'm promoting. I'm I'm trying to promote uh, those of us who were inspired by the vision of Martin King marching in Memphis. I was what twelve, eleven years old when King was killed uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. In fact, uh, with my parents, I was in Memphis visiting my aunts. Mm on the day when uh, Martin King was killed. And so those events are still alive in me. And uh, I think it is our task and our calling to uh, form a coalition with young people. I think that's just uh, riveting in that there must be a bridge. Uh, there has to be um, 
if you will, is quite simply a, a give and a take in the context of allowing people to come to the table, making certain that uh, when the young persons come, I'm not trying to uh, force them to take upon my thoughts or views or when the older persons sit across the table, I'm not holding them in contempt. It's a matter of listening. And in that point of listening, that's where the awakening happens. That's when the moment where we are in now, as you say, and I think you get it right, that we are in a moment uh, that we must uh, embrace equity. Equality must be something that's a part of our rhetoric. And we've got to have the courage to go against the grain. Uh, we've got to raise conversations in spaces like the Dayton Rotary Club that are <laughs> used to those types of dialogues. But we have to have the courage and be courageous enough to have those conversations because they are needed. Uh, I think you've given us a pathway of how equity, diversity, and inclusion, uh, in no particular order, are able to be at work in our communities, in our churches. Uh, I really believe that what you've given us today, you've taken us back in the context of early Christianity and actually Roman history, and have allowed us to be able to take a walk forward to see what happens when we take those texts seriously, and then what happens when the meaning of those texts collapse and there's no one carrying it forward. But as you said about Martin Luther King, we can't wait. Can't wait. We've got to pursue uh, equity. We must pursue diversity. Uh, you, you, you let off this conversation with that it's possible to practice diversity without the erasure of difference. Right. In the world we're living in now, and my last question, last point of conversation. In the world we're in now, there's so much talk about racism and white privilege and white supremacy. And then, as you said earlier, that um, this open sentiments about race have become public. They're no longer a part of the hidden transcript. Uh, they have now become a part of public dialogue and on the news feeds. And wherever you look, you can find conversations that lead one to those types of dialogues. And your, and your final thought, what do you think is necessary? Uh, we definitely have to be experimental. There must be an awakening. There's gotta be a partnership between those who are both young and old. We've gotta participate in community in ways that allows us to uh, be willing to go into the Dayton Rotary Club in regards to what corporation we lead, regardless of our 401k or what our wealth management portfolio looks like. Being willing, to not have any more than we have and not any less than we mm -hmm. currently have in bed. Well, what do you think is needed? What's a quick action, a pathway? Textual in your work as a professor on campus and seeing students, uh, leave us with something that's a pathway to help us understand that it's still possible for equity to be a part of our cultural understanding and it is possible for equality to be something we realize in our lifetime. What's your thoughts? Absolutely. I think it begins, uh, Carrie, with uh, accepting invitations mm. to join to join communities where uh, we may not be at first comfortable, uh, where we may not be in the majority. Uh, it, the, the greatest gift in my life uh, after life itself and the gift of my wife and children was when I was baptized, so to speak. I was included 
in the black church as a young teacher in Chicago. Often I was the only white person in the community. It was a tremendous gift to me my. to be included and to be included despite my difference, the difference of my background and, and my upbringing. I think we have to be clear that uh, white supremacy and white privilege is ugly and it mm. is destroying, it is crushing the human spirit here in the United States. Uh, I, I'm especially dismayed. Mm. It, grieves, it grieves me to see the way in which good-hearted young people, young people of conscience, are now reluctant to publicly confess their faith uh, in Jesus, to publicly identify mm. as a Christian, because white fundamentalists have and white racists have wrapped themselves in the flag wow. of, of Christianity. And Carrie, for us, I think this uh, gives an agenda. Our agenda has to be to reclaim the faith, to reclaim the gospel, uh, to reclaim Jesus, to take it back from the uh, people that are trying to enforce uh, white supremacy. Uh, we have a project of retrieval and reclamation to 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 do, and yeah, you know, that's what I'm dedicating my efforts to. Um, so I, I guess that's where I would close. It is that uh, we have to we have to retrieve and mm. resurrect and renew. Uh, the Christian faith, take it away from the, the forces that are seeking uh, to oppress us and uh, to reclaim the Christian vision. There was a moment like mm. this, Carrie, and I'll, I'll close with this. Yes. There's a moment like this uh, in Germany before the outbreak of World War II, when uh, the fascist, a form of white supremacy, okay. uh, when the fascist came to power under Adolf Hitler. And uh, Hitler attempted to co-op the Christians by creating something called Die Deutsche Kirche, the German, German. Church. Mm. And a group of courageous and visionary men and women, pastors and lay people, that included Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer yes. and Walter Luthi and many others, they stood up and formed something called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church. And they issued a document called the Barman Declaration, in which they reaffirmed their Christian faith and said to the fascist, to the white supremacist, you cannot have this. This doesn't belong to you. 
Um, th this document, the Barman Declaration, inspired then the Kairos document in South Africa. When the South Africans were struggling against apartheid, uh, they took the faith back from uh, the, the advocates of uh, white rule, of the advocates of apartheid. Well, that's our job. That's our job as Christians and especially as pastors and professors of theology. Our job is to take the faith back, take it back from so that young people, young people, progressive, good-hearted young people of conscience are no longer afraid to say, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's just overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, the fact that you can't legislate love. You no, have, no. You've got to go back to the text. <laughs> you, you have to reclaim uh, one of the earliest experiences, the context of those earliest believers and then reframe and what is it that they gained, <clears throat> gained and how did they uh, take that moment? And as you said, the invitation, there must be an invitation and a willingness to participate in a community that you might not be uh, in the majority and have the comfort and the freedom uh, to be able to know that it's time for a declaration. It is time for right. people to stand up, to unravel either the Confederate flag or the American flag from faith and truly participate and be a part of uh, what Christianity is really all about. Apart, apart from the uh, negative prescriptions and patterns that people have and tried to assign to the text. There's mm -hmm. one thing true, and I maintain it and I hold on to it, is that there is power that when community can come together and when we can participate together without necessarily erasing difference, when I can be a young black male in a community of a diverse group of people without having to necessarily subscribe to the fact of uh, right. where I grew up and with my culture or what we do at our family reunion, but can participate and actively engage and welcome the lived experience of the other. I think it's possible for diversity, equity, inclusion, as they talk about it today, to be possible only because we've reclaimed some of the earliest concepts that helped Christian communities survive in a world that was so violent and so unforgiving, but they found a way to be able to maintain a sense of identity and valuation of who they were. And they did that by participating in Christ. Oh, Larry, this has been a phenomenal moment today. Please help me. Thank you. Thank you. How can anyone that wants to connect to you uh, either through podcasts or your teaching, how can we connect to your work? Uh, I'm sure all your works are uh, on Amazon. Uh, I've purchased them all myself, so I know that to be the case. Uh, but if there's anything new you're working on, if there's anything you're involved in that you're able to share, please, we want the audience to know how to connect to your work. You're doing great things, and we really appreciate you. Larry, help us. Uh, thank you, Carrie. I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Anyone can write to me. Uh, it's very simple. Wellborn, W-E-L, just one L, B-O-R-N, at Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M, dot 
edu. Uh, in addition to that, Carrie, I regularly teach almost every Sunday uh, at some church or another by Zoom. Oh, and uh, these classes are open to anyone. Uh, for example, uh, at the beginning of Lent, the Lenten season, yes, in in March. I will be teaching a class on uh, the passion narrative, the account of the last week in the life of Jesus, focusing on the recently discovered Gospel of Peter, Mm. a a passion narrative. Uh, I'll be teaching that class on Zoom at Christ Church Episcopal in in downtown Dayton. And... Anybody can tune in. You just go to the Christchurch website. And if you're not available at that time, I will be teaching the same class for St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church uh, on Manhattan here in New Mm. York City. And again, teaching the class by Zoom. Anybody is welcome to join uh, just go to the website for those churches and look under adult education. Oh, thank you, Larry, so much for sharing uh, your resources and your gift, uh, certainly to uh, the academic world, but without question to culture, to anyone that has an ear. I hope they are open to the invitation that you've given today to be a partner in community with you in Thanks. these types of conversations. Listen, we thank you today for listening in to our DEI today. We hope you have had a great time. Listen, please subscribe. Uh, Press the link right below this video, and that helps us have episodes just like this in the future. There's a lot more to come, much more to talk about, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Let's do it together. This is the invitation to see a new community forum. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.